Shalom, my name is Edward Villa and I'm from the unholy settlement of California. I love Israel National Radio because the truth shall come forth from Zion. Please keep up the wonderful and holy work of bringing the truth, hope, and courage to the nations of the world. May your eternal light keep shining forth from Jerusalem, Israel, and may we all merit the rebuilding of the third holy temple, speedily in our times. Thank you and God bless and keep you all, all of Israel. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to IsraelNationalRadio.com. We are your connection to Israel. Shalom and welcome to all of you lovers of Hashem, His Torah, Israel, and the Noahide Nations. You're on the Noahide Nation show, and I'm your host, Ray Patterson, and I'm certainly glad that you decided to stop on by and have a listen to this Noahide Nation show. Uh, I've got a lot to tell you and a short amount of time to do it, so I am going to kind of jump right into this and uh, just want to, you know, once again say I apologize. I know it's uh, been a couple of weeks since uh, we've been on the, with a new show anyway, and it's been kind of sporadic, and uh, that has to do with the upcoming Noahide World Conference coming up in July in Dallas. I've just been absolutely swamped with the work on that, and it just seems like the closer we get, the more busy I become. So we've had to make a few adjustments to kind of take care of, of this situation, and we have done that, and I do want to share a little bit uh, about that with you right now. But before I do, I want to just do a little quick housekeeping, and that's to remind you folks that we do love to receive your emails, whether you have questions, whether you have comments, uh, whether you just want to say hi or say hi or bye. <laughs> uh, just go ahead and send us your emails to noahide at israelnationalradio.com, and believe me, I tell you with all sincerity, we do appreciate it greatly. Now, as far as the show itself, we've kind of made some temporary changes anyway because of this upcoming conference and, and the work I'm having to do in order to get that taken care of so that we can have a, another great conference for Noahides around the world. And we hope that all of you out there are going to have the opportunity to get there because we do have some great folks going to be speaking there, and I'll get to that in a minute as well. But in terms of getting this show out on a regular basis, once again, I've been given permission by Israel National Radio and bless them for, for doing this because it really does help me out. We're going to have some temporary uh, hosts, people who you probably have heard and probably remember from past shows that will be doing segments on the Noahide Nation show to help fill the gap. At least until after the conference, which, by the way, is going to be the 4th of July weekend. It'll be Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, which happens to be the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of July. Now, some of these folks, as I've mentioned, you have heard and you probably uh, know them from the show, but others you probably know just from knowing people in the Noahide movement. In fact, today you're going to be hearing Doug Taylor. And I know that uh, many, many people appreciated Doug's teachings when he was on with me in the past. And uh, he's going to be with us here today. Uh, you probably also remember my co-host, or I should say one of my co-hosts, Adam Penrod, uh, he is also going to be filling in and doing some segments. 
And we do have a, a few others that will as well. Jacob Sharif, who just recently uh, did uh, some segments on prophecy, and he was also with us uh, in a discussion about the Rambam. So him, you're for familiar with from the show as well, and there are going to be others. I know you're going to really enjoy it, and I know it's a shift, and it's always it's always difficult sometimes to deal with change, but I think this change is really going to be great. And then we'll see how things are after the conference. I know it'll be busy right afterwards. I mean, you need to get people home on the flights, make sure they get home safely, and kind of do the cleanup work that's necessary a week or so after the conference. But we'll see what happens then, and probably go back to our regular format, but in the meantime, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have multiple guests on the show, and we hope that you enjoy it like I think you're going to enjoy it. And once again, I just gave you that email, so do feel free to send us an email and let us know your thoughts. Now, as far as this conference that I'm so involved with and so busy with, uh, some of the people I just mentioned are going to be uh, speaking there, but we have what I believe, anyway, to be one of the greatest list of Torah speakers that, that we could have today gathered in one place. These are so, some of the wisest uh, Torah scholars that we have with us today, that we can actually experience their teachings. And some of them are Rabbi Avraham Sutton, who is uh, an author. He is an editor of many, many great books that you have uh, read. Uh, and he's a fabulous teacher. I mean, I saw him uh, at uh, a conference in Bruceville, and I was overwhelmed. In fact, both my wife and I were just simply overwhelmed with his teaching. So it's a, actually a blessing to have him back here in the United States, being one of our Torah teachers uh, in July. This gentleman goes without saying is one of the, the greats right now, particularly when it comes to knowledge of the Noahide laws. And that's uh, my friend and yours, Rabbi Chaim Richman, the, the international director of the Temple Institute. Obviously, he is very, very, very knowledgeable on the temple and will probably be speaking uh, on the temple, amongst other things. But he is a just a, a fabulous man, just a kind and gentle-hearted man, a, a wonderful teacher, and will we'll be teaching on, on, on depths of knowledge on the Noahide laws for Gentiles that you may never even have heard before. So I hope that you can be here, if for no other reason, just to see Rabbi Richmond, because you, you will truly enjoy it. Let's see, one of the other rabbis that we have uh, there that I know you're probably going to vaguely remember this gentleman. Uh, I am going to have the, the wonderful opportunity to be meeting with him, and he is just a fabulous teacher. I know that you know who this man is. It's Rabbi Tobia Singer, and it goes without saying. In fact, I'll say it anyway, that he is the Rosh Limbaugh of Israel. He is one of the most outspoken, true truth seekers for Israel that I know of and is willing to put himself out there on the front lines and let it be known and to speak the truth. And he has absolutely no fear of doing so. And he is just a, a great speaker. Uh, many of you have probably seen him. I know the majority of you, if not all of you, have heard his radio show right here on Israel National Radio. So to have uh, Rabbi Tobias Singer with us is absolutely 
fabulous and just a, a blessing from Hashem. I, I can't even begin to tell you. So I hope you can make it out to, to see Rabbi Singer. We also have Rabbi Zvi Avenir, who is very, very well-versed in the Noahide laws. In fact, he's been teaching in our Academy of Shem virtual classroom for the better part of four years now, strictly teaching the Noahide laws. So he definitely does know a thing or two about that. Uh, we also have Rabbi Yeshayahu Hollander, uh, also from Israel. He uh, presently sits on the uh, Jerusalem court for B'nai Noak of the Nasset Sanhedrin. We also have uh, Rabbi Teen Rena Richmond, Rabbi Richmond's wife, who is having a special session with the women who are in attendance at the Noahide Conference. So all the ladies, you've got something special, and I mean special, coming your way. I didn't sit in on the last one, but I heard a lot about it. And from what I've heard, you're going to absolutely love this experience. Uh, one of the other very cool things we've got going on is a, a concert being put on by, oh boy, possibly one of the, the best Jewish entertainers out there today, Mr. Sam Glaser. Sam has got 20 plus albums out there. In fact, that week of the conference, he's going to be releasing a brand new album that is going to be Sam. And uh, I'm not sure what the songs are going to uh, consist of, but I have a feeling there might be, might be one or two Noahide songs in there. But Sam is going to be uh, doing a little bit of teaching for us and then putting on a full-blown concert for us uh, Saturday evening after Shabbat. So uh, we hope that you can make it for that and stick around and uh, pick, pick yourself up a few of his CDs and an autograph or two. Uh, also, we've got Doug Taylor, who I mentioned is going to be with us here today. He's going to be speaking. Uh, George Brock, who is a leader uh, of a Noahide group and just uh, a wonderful teacher. In fact, he spoke at our last conference and uh, just did a, a great job. It's wonderful to have him back. And, uh, of course, we're going to have emceeing all of this is going to be my old co-host, I don't mean old as an age old, I mean the very first co-host that we had for No Hide Nations. We both launched this show together, and that's Mr. Jim Long. Many of you know him from the show. A lot of you know him uh, as the author of The Riddle of the Exodus uh, in his DVD. Uh, he's just a, a great guy and an even better MC. So it's my pleasure to allow him to handle those duties once again uh, at this conference. And also there's going to be a gentleman by the name of Jack Saunders, who is also a wonderful teacher, been a leader of a Noahide group for, gosh, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years. I know he's been around for a, a long, long time and just such a, a depth of knowledge in, in Jack. Uh, he, he will stun most of you sitting in, in attendance. My gosh, I hope you can join us for this conference. There's uh, some topics about it on the No Hide Nations website. The venue is there where it's being held. You can register for the conference there. You can reserve your rooms from there. You can read the bios of all the speakers. Uh, there's just a lot of information there. And believe me, folks, when I tell you it is well worth the trip. I don't care what the price of gas is. You need to get there. Because this is going to be a time where we can gather as Gentiles and stand in unity with Israel. Because let's face it, folks, there's no one else standing with them. It is us. And we need to, in one loud voice, 
let them hear all the way from Dallas, all the way over to Israel, that we are with you and we are standing with you. So please, my friends, if you got some vacation time planned, please spend some of it with us here in Dallas uh, at the Noahides World Conference. Now, speaking of Israel, oh my gosh, not uh, not too much going on over there lately. So let's you know, kind of uh, get into some of that. <laughs> One of the things that has absolutely amazed me, but not really surprised me, is that President Obama, <laughs> uh, really Mr. Obama, has started his own personal war against Gaddafi in, in Libya. And why has he done this? Well, we don't really know for sure, but I think some of it has to do with the fact that Gaddafi was killing his own people. And my only question is, is how many of you saw him lift a finger when Hamas was killing Jews? How many of you saw him lift a finger just recently with the bomb exploding at the bus stop? Did anyone hear a peep? out of our wonderful administration in the United States. Nope. I'm still waiting to hear the peep, but I don't think, uh, I'm not going to hold my breath. I mean, you're not going to hear it. He didn't bother, uh, you know, to talk to any of the elected officials in this country about this war against Gaddafi, and he doesn't bother to do a doggone thing for Israel with so many Americans who love Israel, who stand with Israel, and he is just refusing to do anything with what's going on over there. Not a thing. And he really could, in fact, if anything, by his not doing anything, almost promotes what is Hamas is, is doing. So we need some, some things going on here in the United States. But once again, folks, this is another reason for this conference in Dallas is they may not hear Mr. Obama speak, but they're going to hear us. And by gosh, we hope that it echoes around the world several times. But we need all of you to do that. Another, another one of the absolute atrocities that has occurred recently in Israel is uh, once again with uh, Palestinians having murdered an innocent Israeli family. I know that many of you are familiar with this, and I'm just, you know, I'm singing to the choir when I talk about this, but by gosh, I can't, I can't contain it any longer. Uh, the, the savagery with which this was done is enough to make Satan vomit. It was just horrendous. Uh, without mercy of any kind, they slaughtered an innocent baby. They slaughtered two children and their parents just brutally murdered them in just savage, savage ways. These people are, they're not human. They, they, they can't even be considered to be human beings. These murderers just entered the, the, this family's home in, at night and just murdered in, in a barbaric way. And there's really no other words to describe what is done. And barbaric is, makes it sound like it was a picnic. Uh, because what they did was absolutely uh, atrocious. And I don't want to get into it uh, too much, but I'm, I'm talking about the use of knives and cutting of throats and multiple stabs. And just, uh, once again, it was enough to make Satan vomit. And, you know, it's time for this to end, my friends. And it's time for people like 
our President Obama and the other leaders of this country and the other leaders of other countries to stand up once and for all and say something on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people. I mean, I don't even, I mean, don't, you don't have to say a kind word about Israel if you don't want to. Don't have to say a kind word about Jews if you don't want to. But by gosh, you better stand up and condemn these sort of actions because if it was a leader of a country doing this, like Gaddafi, he would be tried for war crimes. And that's what the people who have done this, they need to be tried for war crimes and publicly punished. And, 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 well, I'm not even going to go there because I don't want to get you all riled up because I can already feel myself getting riled up. So anyway, folks, we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Israel, pray for the peace of the Jewish people, because right now there isn't anyone else to do it. The leadership of the world is not leaders at all. They are panty wastes who refuse to do anything to protect and defend innocent people. And I, and I, you know, I'm so sick of hearing about this, the land. Oh, it's the land. Oh, it's the land. It is not the land, my friends. I want anyone out there who's listening who can tell me how much more land Israel needs to give away before the Jewish people stop getting slaughtered. Please send me an email at nohideinisraelnationalradio.com. How about anyone in the UN? Please speak up, email me, call me, make a public statement of how much more land needs to be stolen from the people of Israel before you stop the slaughter of Jews, before you condemn the slaughter of the Jewish people. President Obama, you're such an eloquent speaker. Speak to me. How much more land needs to be given away before you will stand side by side with the innocent Jewish people? When? What's it going to take? How much land? Is it some? Is it part? Is it all? Is it even about the land, Mr. President? How about Hamas? Hamas, can you tell us how much more land you need before you stop slaughtering Jews? How about any Arabs? The Arabs, there is so much Arab land. The Palestinians could take over land that is ten times larger than Israel. Do you think any one of these Arabs is going to do it? Any one of these Arab nations, Syria, Egypt, I don't care. Is any one of them going to step up and give the Palestinians their own land? Anyone going to do it? No. You know why? Because it's not about the land. It's about them using the Palestinians and Hamas carrying out the slaughter of innocent Jewish people. Well, my friends, enough is enough. It is time to pray for Hashem to step in and with his mighty right hand of justice to deliver justice that is well deserved. So, my friends... I didn't mean to get so excited about this, but I, I can I can only say that Hamas is truly, and their supporters, not just Hamas, but the supporters, even people here in the United States who support these animals, they are truly the definition of true evil. And in the words of Sir Edmund Burke, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph 
is for good men to do nothing. Well, for all of you good men and women, all of you good people out there, it is time to do something. So please stand up and sound off and be counted. Now, there's one last thing that I'd like to talk about here that's really ah, it's one of those good news, bad news things. Uh, the bad news is that we are all mourning the passing of a legendary American actress by the name of uh, Ms. Elizabeth Taylor. We all know her. We all know that she's famous for being a Hollywood actress. And uh, she just recently passed away at the age of, of 79. And she obviously enjoyed a long and hugely successful career in Hollywood. But did you know that Ms. Taylor had converted to Judaism in 1959 by Rabbi Max Nussbaum. Did you know that? Was anyone aware of that? I wasn't aware of that until just recently. And this was a woman who truly stood with the Jewish people in her in the, in the ways that she could. Uh, you know, some of her outstanding work on behalf of Israel and, and, and the Jewish people, she actually raised nearly a million dollars for Israel at a, a big gala that it went on in London in 1967. Do you know how much nearly a million dollars in 1967 was? That's like a hundred million today. I mean, that's a, that's a staggering. This was also the, the same year. <laughs> this is kind of funny. The same year she canceled her visit to Moscow after the Soviet Union lashed out at Israel after the 1967 six day war. A astonishing. This, she gave up her tour of, of uh, the Soviet Union and in, in Moscow. Also, and I was unaware of this, in 1959, she personally purchased $100,000 in Israeli bonds. Again, what, how much was $100,000 in 1959? My gosh, that's incredible. Now, a couple other things, and I'm, I'm running short on time here, so I'm going to try and get this out. In 1975, uh, she was one of 60 prominent women to sign a statement uh, to then UN Secretary General Kurt Waldheim condemning the UN General Assembly's infamous Zionism uh, racism resolutions. Uh, she actually offered herself as a hostage when there were 104 hostages aboard an Air France Airbus that was hijacked by PLO terrorists and held in Uganda's Entebbe Airport. She actually put herself up as a hostage if they would release those 104 hostages, which, of course, they never did. But not to worry, the hostages were rescued in a spectacular Israeli commando mission, oddly enough, on July 4th, 1976, which was America's 200th birthday takes amazing courage. And I really wish I could do more because it's, she is so deserving of it. In fact, maybe I'm going to go ahead and do some of that next week. So, But folks, for now, I'm going to have to step aside so that we can take a break. And when we come back here on Noahide Nation, you're going to be with Doug Taylor. So please, my friends, enjoy yourself, and I will see you next week.
If you're interested in making Aliyah or want to be interested in making Aliyah, listen to the Aliyah Revolution. Our job is to explain to people how they can get here too. We're going to give people ways that they can make their dream a reality. That's the Aliyah Revolution live every Thursday on Israel National Radio. Greetings, and welcome to the Noahide Nations radio show. I'm Doug Taylor, and your host for this segment. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a non-Jewish person who's had the good fortune of being able to study Torah with Orthodox Jewish rabbis and scholars for over 20 years. I've had the opportunity to share some of that learning through about 80 classes on the Noahide Nations Academy of Shem Internet Learning Center, and I've also had the privilege of being a guest on this show in the past. A number of years ago... I was asked to speak at a Noahide conference, and in preparation for that talk, I went back over lots of pages of notes that I had from classes that I'd uh, been involved in with the rabbis. And as I looked over those notes, a number of key themes and principles emerged. And today, I'd like to share some of those ideas with you. They've heavily impacted not only my Torah learning, but many other aspects of my life as well. The first idea is perhaps best conveyed through a story. So walk with me through this and let's see what we find. Imagine that you are a police officer. It's a hot summer afternoon. You're alone in your patrol car, pulled off to the side of the road, and you've just taken a bite out of your lunchtime sandwich when you get a call on the radio reporting an armed holdup at a convenience store just a mile from you. The suspect is a male, about 5 feet 10, medium build, brown hair. So you set the sandwich down, flip on your flashing lights, and take off down the street. When you're about a quarter mile away, you flip the lights off and quietly pull your car up to the side of the store. Moving quickly, you step out of the car and you carefully work your way discreetly up to the front door, which happens to be propped open because of the heat. You look inside and this is what you see. Behind the counter, where the clerk usually stands, there's a guy lying on the floor, clutching his shoulder and moaning in pain. In front of the counter, where the customers usually stand, there's another guy on the floor, He's not moving, and there's some reddish, liquidish-looking stuff coming out from underneath him. Standing over the guy on the floor is another guy, and he's about five foot ten, medium build, brown hair, and he's holding a gun pointed at the guy on the floor. And he looks up and sees you. You have a split second to make a decision. What are you going to do? Well, look, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, there's the bad guy. He just shot the clerk. He just shot a customer. You're going to use your police-issued 9mm handgun and stop any further bloodshed by quickly dispatching him, right? Okay. Your split second of decision time is now passed. So the question is, what did you do? This is not an easy situation but it's a very realistic situation that a police officer could encounter any day. Did you fire on the bad guy or the person you thought was the bad guy? Or did you do something else? Or 
Did you not know what to do? Which is a very legitimate response, especially if you haven't had any training in this kind of thing. If you fired on the guy with the gun, there's going to be a problem because this is how the situation actually transpired. A bad guy walks into the store, points a gun at the clerk, and demands all the money in the cash register. For whatever reason, the clerk startles the bad guy, the bad guy fires, hits the clerk in the shoulder, the clerk falls to the floor, and is now lying there wounded. In the meantime, a private citizen at the back of the store who is just getting a quart of milk out of the cooler, sees what's going on. He pulls out his legal concealed weapon, for which he has a legal concealed weapons permit, and with which he has had extensive professional training, points it at the bad guy and shouts, freeze. The bad guy whirls around to shoot him. The good guy sees what the bad guy is about to do, fires off two rounds, and hits the bad guy, who falls to the floor, not moving, with the gun underneath him. The private citizen, in this case the good guy, slowly moves up to the front of the store, still keeping his weapon pointed at the guy on the floor in case he's only pretending to be hit, all the while scanning and looking around to make sure that there isn't a second bad guy. Just as he reaches the front of the store with his gun pointed at the bad guy on the floor, you, the police officer, show up. Now, you might ask, well, what about the description? The guy with the gun matched the description of the bad guy. So let's go over that again. The description was male, about 5 feet 10, medium build, brown hair. That description matches millions of people. So why am I telling you all this? Because there is an important tool that I discerned from the rabbis in the course of my learning with them, which is we must learn to differentiate between facts and interpretations. Facts and interpretations. In our case, what are the facts? The facts are these. This is coming from the point of view of the police officer. There are two people on the floor. And there's one guy standing over one of them with a gun. And the guy with the gun matches a very vague description, the source and veracity of which haven't yet been verified. That's it. Everything beyond that is an interpretation. As we move through life in the world of physical things, in relationships with other people, and in the world of ideas, we need to actively engage ourselves with the questions, what are the facts and where does interpretation start? Let's look at today's economy. Somebody might say, you know, I I just lost my job. I'm a loser. And a counselor might say to that person, you know, you would create a whole lot less stress for yourself if you would separate the facts from your interpretation of them. It is a fact that you lost your job. It's only your interpretation that you're a loser. And I will submit to you that this concept is enormously important because we so easily see something or we hear something or we read something and then we begin to invent a story around it. 
and pretty soon we can't tell the difference between what was actually there or heard or said or read and the story that we've mentally told ourselves about that. For example, suppose you're single and dating and you've made arrangements to meet someone for dinner at a restaurant and this is your first date with this person. You're on time and you're waiting and they're not there. And the clock ticks and the minutes go by and it's five minutes and it's 10 minutes and they're not there. What do you start thinking? Well, depending on your internal makeup and your personality, you might start thinking that they've stood you up. What if 25 minutes goes by and they're still not there? Now what are you thinking? Maybe, gee, they didn't like me in the first place. And gosh, that really makes me feel kind of rejected. And I start remembering other times when I felt rejected and my attitude gets worse and worse and worse. And then suddenly the person appears, hugely apologetic, saying, I'm so sorry I was late. I had a flat tire and my cell phone battery was dead and there was no way I could reach you. Wow, that changed life a lot suddenly, didn't it? All that negative feeling that I had before was totally based on something that never happened. Because I focused on my interpretation rather than the facts. The beginning of knowledge is the ability to make distinctions, to be able to differentiate between one thing and another. A scientist works on perfecting that part of his or her mind that clarifies definitions. In our world, we see facts. For example, the sun appears to rise and set each day. And then from that, we abstract a concept that the earth revolves around the sun. This method of thinking is really important. I mean, virtually all of science is based on observations and testing and experiments where we see things happen and then we try to figure out, okay, what is really going on with regard to that? What is really happening? Many people will state causes as to why things happen without carefully differentiating sometimes between the facts and the interpretations. For example, someone might say, oh, you got a cold or the flu because you didn't wear your raincoat or, you know, because you got chilled or because you stopped taking vitamin C that particular day or something like that. But cause and effect is an abstract concept. We never see cause and effect. We interpret cause and effect. For example, at least in the United States, could we say that red trucks cause fires? I mean, after all, if you go to almost any fire, you'll find a red truck there, the fire truck. And it obviously would be an incorrect conclusion to say, oh, there's cause and effect there. Obviously, the red truck caused the fire. That would clearly be incorrect. So how do we learn to develop an ability to accurately differentiate between facts and interpretations? And I'll suggest it's by developing as many questions as we can. We talked about that uh, in an uh, episode of, or a segment of this show um, that uh, I was on a number of weeks ago. Asking questions is our first tool, and learning how to question is very, very important. 
And an important related question in our inquiry about the facts and what are the facts and what are the interpretations is, is there any exaggeration involved here? We always want to look for any type of inconsistency and anything that is not clear. And as can be seen from the example that we just went through, there are very great dangers in mixing facts and interpretations. Our interpretations may be incorrect, and then we might act on them as if they are fact. Here's another example. Let's suppose you have an appointment in a busy downtown area of a big city at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. You're driving a car and you're alone. And you're also running a little late. And it is very important that you are on time for this appointment. You know, let's imagine that it's a, a job interview or something like that. And you arrive downtown at about 9.58 a.m. And there is no parking in sight. Every spot near the building is taken. And the closest parking lot is four blocks away and you'll never get the car parked and get to that building in time. But then, just as you round the corner of the building one last time, a couple in a convertible pulls out of a parking spot right in front of the building. You're right behind them, and as they pull out, you pull in, you jump out of your car, throw some money into the parking meter, and you go walking through the front door of the building at exactly 10 a.m. right on time for your appointment. And then, what is the great temptation, particularly for religious people, to say? Wow, God's really looking out for me. You've probably heard people say that kind of thing when circumstances seem to go in a way that they like. So let's use the tool we just learned and ask, what are the facts here and what are the interpretations? And I'll submit to you, that there is only one fact, only one piece of information that we know for certain is true. And that is this, a parking spot became available at a time when it was advantageous to me. That's it. Everything after that is an interpretation. Unless I've done a thorough study of the Torah, to see exactly how God relates to people, and when he does and doesn't intervene in the physical world, it's my interpretation, and you could also say my emotional projection, that God specifically ordered the universe so that I would have a parking spot right at the time I needed it. I actually have no other evidence for that besides my wishful thinking. And I'm saying, I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm just saying that we equally have no real evidence that it is true. Now, why is this dangerous? The reason it's dangerous to jump to those kinds of conclusions is because it can give us a false view of God. I could start assuming that God is intervening in all kinds of specific situations in my life when, in fact, he may not be. Once I assume that God ordained a parking spot for me, I could build on that. For example, suppose the appointment was with a high-powered individual who wanted me to invest money with him. Maybe if I took a long, hard, objective look at that investment, 
I'd realize, no, that's not a good investment of my money. But if I already think that God has his hand in this, because after all, I got a parking spot, then I might jump to the potentially incorrect conclusion that I should invest the money. Because after all, I see how God's guiding me in this, right? He provided me this miracle parking spot. Do you see how the trap works here? We make one error in thinking... And then it can compound itself until we've layered error after error on our thinking. And after a while, we can end up so far off the track of truth that we can't tell the difference between a real idea and our fantasies. That's why it is so important to differentiate between facts and interpretations. There's an interesting related point here. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes we exaggerate. You've heard people say this. For example, oh, you've no idea how difficult it was in the airport yesterday. The lines ran for miles. Really? Miles? See, when we go beyond the facts and exaggerate, it's because we don't want to be limited by reality. Our emotions want something. And the first step in dealing with that is to notice that it's happening. As someone once said, when you have an argument with your spouse, never say always when you mean twice. Our desire to win the argument can cause us to exaggerate the truth because emotionally we want to make our point. And the statement, you always leave your clothes on the floor, somehow expresses our frustration better than... You left your clothes on the floor twice. Now, there's another important corollary here that can hugely affect our decisions in everyday life as well as in the world of ideas and the world of Torah study. And it is also best illustrated by example. For $10 million, would you jump out of an airplane without a parachute? Think about it. Would you? I've asked this question to lots of audiences. And generally speaking, most of the people say no. Some audiences, all of them say no. And it's usually only a few people who ask, well, is the airplane flying? Because wouldn't you want to know what kind of airplane and where it is before you decide that you wouldn't be willing to jump out of it. Because if the airplane, for example, is a small two-seater and it's sitting on the runway, the distance from that airplane down to the ground could be as little as about four feet. But what happens is that most of us, when we first hear this, make the implicit assumption that the plane is flying. And then we base our decision on that assumption without ever checking to see if it's correct. In fact, many of us never even realize we're making the assumption. The key here is the most dangerous assumptions are the ones we don't realize we're making. The obvious danger here is that we act on those untested and potentially inaccurate assumptions, and then we make incorrect decisions in life. So how do we prevent that? by asking questions. 
And an important question to ask here is, what am I assuming about this situation that I'm not questioning? It's those hidden and untested assumptions that can get us into trouble. And that leads us to one more idea. Do you ever feel guilty? Based on my experience, our society, at least in the United States, is ridden with guilt. We feel guilty that we haven't gotten more done, that we haven't saved enough, that we don't exercise enough, that we eat the wrong foods, that our houses aren't clean enough, and so on and so forth. The question is, what does guilt mean and what do we do about it? And I will suggest this idea. The only purpose of guilt is to prompt me to do an investigation to determine whether or not I did the right thing. Let me repeat that. The only purpose of guilt is to prompt me to do an investigation to determine whether or not I did the right thing. Guilt is not a determiner of whether I did the right thing. Its only purpose is to prompt me to do the investigation. Why? Because there's all kinds of false guilt out there. There are people who feel guilty if they don't mow their lawn each week, or people who feel guilty if they don't dust their furniture in a month. Yet, where is it written in the cosmos that one has to do these things? We make this stuff up, truly. We decide based on something in our upbringing, or because of watching what other people do, or because of something we read in a book, or in a newspaper, or saw on TV or the internet, that these things are somehow true, that this is the standard that I have to live up to, and then we feel guilty because we don't measure up to the fantasy expectations that we ourselves created. So what's the answer? We need to channel our emotions, and in this case the emotion of guilt, in a beneficial manner. We need to channel it into a rational analysis of the situation by asking ourselves, is this really a situation where I've acted incorrectly? What standards am I measuring myself against? And are those relevant standards? Now, if I haven't acted incorrectly, then I use my rational mind to realize that my guilt is simply misplaced. And if I have acted incorrectly, then I figure out with my rational mind what to do to fix the situation. And I also do an analysis to figure out what caused me to make the error in the first place so I won't repeat this. That allows us to get out of blame and live more in the world of reality. So in summary, key ideas differentiate between facts and interpretations. Check your assumptions and recognize the real purpose of guilt. Thanks for being here for this segment of the Noahide Nations radio show. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you can be with us next time. In the meantime, make this a great day. This is a moment in Jewish history. Joseph Trumpador became the highest-ranking Jewish soldier in the Russian army. Despite prejudice and persecution, Trumpador won medals of honor in the Russo-Japanese War and even lost an arm in the fighting. Not satisfied to remain a war hero in Russia, Trumpador moved to Israel where he joined the pioneering movements and he also teamed up with Zev Jabotinsky to start the first Jewish army unit since Roman times. Beginning with the Zion Mule Corps and later the Jewish Legion, Trumpador created what later became the Israel Defense Forces. 
and Trumpeldor's philosophy of doing whatever it takes to help the cause and his favorite phrase of end of our, meaning it doesn't matter, was an inspiration to many. Trumpeldor died at the Battle of Tel Chai in 1920, uttering the words Tov Lamud Ba'at Arzenu, meaning it's good to die for our country. This moment in Jewish history has been brought to you by Israel National Radio.